next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's episode, we have Dave Anashenko, the owner and principal of Clarity Development Advisory, an urban development and planning advisory firm located within Edmonton. He is passionate about development. His skill sets align with connecting people and ideas and finding solutions where barriers form. Prior to starting Clarity Development Advisory in 2017, he worked with several roles in the local development industry, including managing development project for McLab Development Group, and as an urban planner in both the private and public sectors, including working at the City of Edmonton, Perio Plan, and Stantec. Dave spent the last four years as a director at large on the Westmount Community League and also teaches as a seasonal instructor at the University of Alberta for Applied Land Use Planning Program. He holds a master's degree in urban planning for the University of Waterloo, which his thesis is focused around competing and facilitating factors for greyfield development, redevelopment, sorry, uh, and we get into that in today's episode. So let's dive right into definitions. So there's a few things that we'll, we'll need to talk about before we get into today's uh, episode, because it is quite a technical episode. Dave is all about the details. Uh, so first thing I want to go into is the Greyfield conversation that I was just talking about. So what is a Greyfield site? It is a commercial or retail site, such as a shopping center or a strip mall or a big box store that has been abandoned after a period of disinvestment. We also talk about brownfield development, which are contaminated sites, for example, gas stations. We also do a lot of conversations around direct controls. We call them DCs, which is terribly jargony of us, <laughs> but it is currently used for uh, to allow development where uh, a standard zone can't be accommodated. So you've got a site that may be a wonky size, uh, or you're looking to build something that aligns with city plan, but uh, the st- there's site constraints. So that's where a DC2 uh, comes into play, or a DC1 if you're a heritage site. The next thing we talk about is green belts, and green belts is a policy or a land use zone designated to restrain areas of largely undeveloped wild or agricultural land surrounding or neighboring urban areas. Uh, so it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a green belt of, <laughs> of great green spaces. Um, and then I'm going to get into RA9, uh, and then I'll let Ryan take the rest of the definitions from here. And sorry there's so many definitions, but if you don't have these before we get into the conversation, I'm worried you might get a little lost. So RA9, it's a standard zone in Edmonton used to develop uh, high-rise residential and mid-rise residential uh, that contain active residential and non-residential frontages at the ground level. And it really depends on the size of land that you have, uh, of how high you can build. Uh, so it ranges between four stories and 12 stories, which is a really big gap. Um, but if you get a larger piece of land, you can develop higher. That is a little problematic because in infill, you usually are only redeveloping one to three lots. Uh, so you're not getting into the density that is needed for the area. 
But that's my personal preference. I'll let Ryan take it from here. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that personal preference. Uh, the RF1 zone in Edmonton, it's the single detached residential zone. It's the name, but it doesn't actually only include single detached uh, housing anymore. It now allows duplexes, semi-detached, all kinds of suite. It's the lowest density zone that we have in Edmonton for residential. A CRL, a community revitalization levy. What the heck is that? It's a planning and financial tool that helps municipalities revitalize areas where redevelopment may not otherwise take place. So it allows municipalities to borrow from the provincial government against future property tax revenues to help pay for things like infrastructure, um, wastewater systems, new roads, stuff like that to uh, spur new development in a specific area. It's typically in place for about 20 years, could be longer and shorter, depending on um, how quickly the uh, um, the area redevelops. Um, and, you know, there's three examples here in Edmonton that we have CRLs for the quarters, uh, Belvedere up in the Northeast, and of course, downtown with the new arena. Dave, uh, myself and Mariah talk a lot about the Highlands project that Clarity did. We should have defined it in the episode, my goodness. But anyways, it's a project that they did at 5335112 Avenue here in Edmonton. It was built in 1951 as part of the original subdivision of the Edmonton's Highland neighborhood. And the building served the community over the last 50, 60 years with a variety of small-scale commercial amenities. Um, in the 2000s, the property fell into uh, a bunch of zoning and conformance challenges and has been vacant ever since. So Clarity uh, was approached by the owner and found them a solution that, uh, that works to keep the building as is on the parcel. Before we get into today's episode, I do want to leave a little bit of a crumb. Uh, we are going to talk about a really interesting grant at the end of our outro. Uh, so stick around for that and Ryan will get into how it works now. Let's go talk to Dave. Uh, on today's episode, we have Dave Amashenko, who is the owner and principal of Clarity Development Advisory, an urban planning and development advisory firm located in Edmonton. As a professional urban planner and development manager with nearly 15 years of experience in development uh, industry, Dave has built his career overseeing the planning and development of hundreds of projects in residential, commercial, and industrial sectors in Edmonton and throughout Western Canada. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dave. Thanks for having me. Happy to speak with you guys. Yeah, Dave, uh, we're very excited because it's very seldom that we get to talk to planners. Now we got three planners in a room here so we can nerd out about planning topics. And we'll get into that. But first thing I got to ask you is in your bio that you sent us, you said you're a shameless fan of Edmonton. So I just, I have to ask, what are your favorite things about Edmonton? Oof. Well, I, you know, it's easy people to say, you know, River Valley, and it is. It's one of my biggest things that I love about Edmonton. I'm a big cyclist, and so, you know, we live uh, right near the River Valley, just west of downtown, and so it's easy to get in, you know, on the River Valley with my kids on weekends on, on, the, on the paths and just on my bike in the morning before work. You know, beautiful area, beautiful refuge. Uh, two is the city punches above its weight for its size in terms of like culture, food, um, you know, opportunities for the city, the size that it is, it's, you know, lights out kind of above, above what it should be. Three, I think is affordability. And we're going to talk a bit about that later, I hope, um, because that's important, especially important in terms of housing and opportunities. And when I think about opportunities for my kids, and other people, um, that's a big thing. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that kind of brought 
us back here to Edmonton and keeps me here. And so we can talk more about that later, but that's, uh, that's an important aspect and a, a, a marketing aspect for, for cities in, in Western countries right now. Yeah. Heck of a plug to listen through to the end of the episode. I love that. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into planning to begin with. Yeah. So my BA is in intercultural studies and uh, with that, I was, you know, I had plans to work in not-for-profits and NGOs and everything. And I did a bunch of travel, taught English in China, uh, worked in Central and Eastern Europe for a while. Um, and I was also fortunate growing up to do lots of travel with my family. And it was something that they prioritized. And so got to see, you know, lots of different areas, lots of different cities. And always liked cities, liked the ways they developed. And, you know, it would be a cool piazza in, in Europe or exploring the, you know, city, the way cities developing in Southeast China, for example. And I couldn't put my finger on, or I didn't even know I should say a career that was tied to that. I liked architecture, like buildings. And it wasn't until I found uh, a group of um, online, like armchair architects and development critics and stuff uh, in Edmonton, uh, skyscraper page was the, the form and, and some people might know about this and found a couple of guys and some of which were planners and told me about what they did. And so, you know, you had a mix of some people in the industry, other people who are, you know, whatever, uh, they, they weren't and had interest. And this would have been I don't know, over 15 years ago and, um, got together a couple of times with some of them for, for coffee or beers and uh yeah actually learned a bit about planning and um the the rest is history ended up going back doing another degree in planning in waterloo and switching to the master's program and uh started working for stantec uh remotely and while i was there and uh yeah that led me to the field of you know what what it is that that i do that you guys are involved with and and your your training and uh love it um, and then if I, uh, if I remember correctly, you did your thesis on Greyfield redevelopment. What, what is a Greyfield? Yeah. So Greyfields are underutilized or economically depressed, uh, typically retail commercial establishments. So if you think of a dead mall or a dead commercial strip or a dying, and there's metrics, you know, in my thesis, I remember talking about a certain amount of revenue per square foot. If it dips below that, there's all this kind of criteria for it but you know for a variety of reasons either um you know it's been leapfrogged in terms of development pulling out uh economically depressed neighborhoods you know a lot of different factors that that led to it but uh yeah that's that's what i did so um impeding and facilitating factors of grayfield redevelopment was the title and then looking at lessons to apply to uh the city of edmonton and uh yeah that was that was fun yeah, have they applied any of those lessons that you concluded? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I did a lot of interviews with people who worked at the city at, time, at the time. With uh, It was Councillor Don Iveson at the time was one of my interviewees, then, then mayor. I don't know. I mean, in short, no, not really. Uh, there was, you know, I think 13 different levers and opportunities of things that could be done. You know, the, there's some of them that maybe the industry's moved in that direction. Um, but others, you know, they, they require more creative approaches and, and require, um, bigger, bigger carrots, let's say, you know, whether it be, you know, financial opportunities and public financing or, or a variety of things. So I think there's, you know, like, 
like we see in planning in a lot of capacities, there's opportunity to do better. There's big strides the city's Edmonton has made, for example, that they've been getting some accolades from in both the uh, you know national press and uh, you know, podcasts and and whatnot, or the radio uh, recently on CBC Radio. But uh, there's always opportunity to do better. And uh, that leads to better outcomes for development projects, for residents, for everyone involved in the process. Yeah, 100%. One of those, um, you know, pats on the back should be for that. Uh, the city has the Brownfield um, Redevelopment Program, the Brownfield Grant Program. I'm not sure if it covers Grayfields and Brownfields equally. I know the Brownfield Program only really applied to gasoline and diesel fueling stations and, and the city like expanded it a little bit to, to, to allow a little bit more funding. But what other types of uh, kind of incentives do you think the city could have or um, maybe it's beyond the city, provincially, federally, or what, what other kind of incentives could there be to incentivize redevelopment of the Grayfield or Brownfield sites? Yeah, well, and I will say it even goes beyond that, incentivizing redevelopment as a whole. Um, so Brownfields, like you said, it's tied directly to environmental remediation. That's the issue. And so we you know, worked on a number of sites over the years, worked on one just recently here that had that as a component and, and you know, worked with creatively on how we structured that, the new zoning for it, that, that we're able to do that, secure the funding and, and make that, that project work. But there's a lot of opportunities for incentivization for redevelopment. Tax increment financing is a great one. So we have uh, CRLs in Alberta, Control Revitalization Levies, but they're a creation of the province. And we require the province to do so. So there's, what, five in the province? Three, I think, are in Edmonton, Belvedere, Quarters, and downtown. The city can go through, create, you know, and the province is the, the granting authority. Well, tax increment financing, you know, exists in the U.S., and so it can be through uh, property tax deferral, payment up front. There can be public improvement fees, so an increase of sales tax, and that money is allocated up front. It's paid back through a percentage. It can be attributed to a geographic area. These are all levers that can be uh, voted on by the local municipality and implemented for individual projects. They don't even have to be, you know, full areas. And you know, when I was doing that Grayfield research a number of years ago. I spoke with one individual and uh, it said 95% of these projects have some component of public financing to pay for them. And, and without that, he said, um, you know, the, the lending is riskier um, because often that public financing, will, you know, guarantee or backstop lending, their capital stack doesn't make as much sense. It, uh, there's leverage risk. So it's, it's an important thing that we need to continue to investigate. And so, yeah, part of it, maybe offsetting some of that thing with the environmental scope brownfields, but, but what else can be done? There's, there's a couple others that I spoke about recently and learned about recently. So there's um, qualified opportunity zones, and this is new from like 2017 in the U.S. with uh, capital gains tax deferment that you can take your, uh, that capital gains uh, and defer it, investing in real estate projects and qualified opportunity zones. And it's effectively like low income zones or designated zones in each state and say, hey, you invest in this project here, keep the money parked in it for 10 years, you can pull it out tax free at the end. And so great opportunity for a number of people who are going to have that huge capital gains expense. Now those 
zones sometimes aren't in the most economically depressed area, like central Portland, for example, is designated as one. And a lot of the money is going to some of these more affluent areas that have qualified for the zones. Yeah, I mean, those are some great, great ones. A historical, historical tax credits, another great one, too, that we don't have that opportunity here. When properties are designated on the historical registry, their 20% of expenditures of redevelopment can be qualified as a tax credit. And that can be, you know, used personally or used as part of the project, I should say or um, leveraged as an equity piece in your capital stack as well. So there's lots of different carrots and opportunities using different um, public levers and and mechanisms that encourage redevelopment. And uh, I think we we do great by the development industry, by our cities, by trying to explore some of those. And some of these require the, you know, the granting authority from the feds, from the province and municipalities, but that I could I could go on and on. There's 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 lots of opportunities for for that. We should we should explore having more of that in in development in Canada. That's really interesting. Do you find that most of those uh, incentives or opportunities exist in the U.S. or have you seen any of them applied in different areas of Canada as well? Yeah, I mean these are mostly American examples. You might even have redevelopment organizations or arms within municipalities that can act as a lending institution for projects too, and will backstop projects and they'll cover projects. You know, we do have one of the most recent arms, uh, or I guess tools, I should say, the CMHC. You know, which will help provide funding as well through their MLI Select program, which is new this year, and that's you know great opportunity for multifamily projects. And especially in areas that aren't seeing a ton of investment because some areas are overtaxed. But in Edmonton, especially, there is, you know, a way to get, you know, up to 95% loan to cost ratio on projects through that over you know, a significant term by hitting criteria, both on building code, uh, efficiency, and then on average medium incomes, for example. So in Edmonton, Calgary, it actually works out fairly well because we've got a low cost of housing and a high higher median income. So you can say X percent of my units, you know, meet this 30% threshold of medium income and, and therefore it you know qualifies as an affordable unit. So it's a you know a good federal program that bodes well for especially smaller scale uh, multifamily projects in Edmonton and Calgary and especially in neighborhoods that aren't overly taxed like say you know Oliver. I think there, there's a couple of things but um, there, there's a lot more opportunities of things that could be done in Canadian municipalities. So yeah there uh, you jumped into a few conversations before I I had the opportunity to ask you, you have a background in planning. What do you feel like is the role of a planner in the development process? Some planners may say my role is to help get you your, you know, your rezoning, your land use designation for this site. And that is it. And that is one tranche of an overall project. And they come in, they're tasked with doing something, they do it and they move on. You know, personally, uh, I like to take a bigger perspective on things. My interest is always been the life cycle of development projects. Planning is a tranche of that, but it has it is one component of a much larger story of seeing a project envisioned, uh, planned, built, and realized. And so when we look at projects, for example, I want to make sure that there's viability in, in something for a client first. So we, don't, we don't want to take on a project that is destined to fail to collect a fee. But Ultimately, you know, we see our role as a bit of a, a navigator through the unknown for clients. 
And, um, you know, we act as kind of that conduit. So sometimes we take on a significant amount of, of work and, you know, we've expanded our capacity to do this into development advisory and, and, and direction in, in that regard, because I think planning bleeds into a lot of these other questions, engineering, of servicing, of feasibility, of financing, of uh, construction. And so, you know, I like to say that um, we build on ideas. That's a bit of a tagline, but we're a connector of people and ideas and that we want to work with uh, clients and projects we believe in. Sometimes it it's operating a lot outside of that traditional scope of what planning is. Sometimes it doesn't mean we're taking a fee, but we're helping that project move along and we're pointing it in the right direction to see it realized. So it's a long winded answer to say, I think that planning is a lot more holistic than, you know, a, a definition you may give it. Uh, because I think the role of a planner is or can be, you know, a, a bit more of that guide and a bit more of that jack of all trades and, and connector of people and ideas. Yeah, it's, um, I think it, it touches so many parts of the development process. Uh, and you need a really great planner uh, on your file to make it, your project successful. Uh, your background, you've worked public and private, I believe, and then you started your own firm five years ago. What made you jump into starting your own firm? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's funny. Um, my last role that I had, I was working as the development manager at um, Collab Development Group. And uh, so there, there was greenfield development, there was uh, commercial uh, planning for some of their multifamily and redevelopment of their assets. And my interest has always been development, as I had said, um, and the bigger components of that. So when I decided I was going to do something myself, I wanted to you know, have the ability to pick and choose what I was interested in, um, operating in my wheelhouse and my experience of largely being planning, but also then uh, development advisory, development management, and be able to chart our course for, you know, what what I and now with the larger company, you know, wants to achieve. And so being able to select that, work on projects that are interesting, work on projects um, that we believe in and, and with clients that we believe in, and, you know, also having that component of development advisory and management to be that conduit of development related questions, helping find solutions, managing projects, and, uh, you know, hoping to, to start some projects of our own here in the near future. What's the story behind the name? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny because so I've heard on in your podcast before. Uh, I think you're talking with Chelsea about Situate and you're laughing about everyone wanting, or Ryan, I think was laughing about everyone naming things after their kids in the development industry. And and you see that everywhere. So uh, in full confession, uh, I've got two kids, Jude and Claire. And I wasn't even thinking about Claire, but I was lying in bed one night and it just, I just popped up in my clarity. And so, yes, <laughs> tied to the name of my daughter. And so I'll wave, I'll wave that flag all day long. I'm, I'm a, a proud father and she's awesome. But I think it speaks to the role that um, we say we provide and that we want to provide to our clients. And it comes up, it's, it's laughable because it comes up in meetings all the time. You know, it, we're going to provide clarity on this matter or, it, you know, let's seek some clarity on this. And that is what we hope to achieve and, and believe we achieve for our clients is providing that clarity. They come to us with questions. They're looking for solutions. And, you know, through our experience, through our expertise, through our network of connections, we provide that clarity. And sometimes 
you know, it, it's a bit of a process. Sometimes it's working to get the, those development rights to ensure clarity on their pro forma and balance sheet, knowing they can proceed. But at the end of the day, I think that is a lot of what we do is we provide clarity for our clients. And so, you know, that's that's the name. It it, it speaks to what what I believe in, what we want to achieve. And and uh, there we are. Yeah. So for full transparency, I uh, I thought the name was all about providing clarity. Uh, before you joined the call, Ryan told me that you had told him that really sweet story about your daughter. And I was like, I I need more people to know that. That is really <laughs> cute. <laughs> I'm sure she'll appreciate it one day when uh, when she's older and gets to help you with uh, business stuff as all young kids with parents with uh, family businesses get to do. Yeah. So at Clarity, you guys have a ton of cool projects. I think my favorite one is um, I have a friend that lives uh, in the Highlands and uh, he lives really close to that Highlands project that you guys did. I think it was about a year ago, that really interesting kind of weird commercial building that had been there forever and had gone through a bunch of different transitions. Lots of people had tried to get it uh, redeveloped, rezoned, that type of thing. You guys actually powered through and got it rezoned. I think it was a direct control though. Am I right? You know the one I'm talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I watched the council meeting that you guys were at, and uh, I think that speaks, um, the way you handled that entire project, I think, speaks to how what you just said about, you know, what clarity is or what the role of the planner is. You, you took on more of a role than just getting a, a zoning approval there. But I am curious about going direct control, and not just specifically to this one, but, you know, direct controls in general. How many of your projects are, are kind of pushed into this direct control? Because that kind of aligns with your vision of kind of an overall jack of all trades. You kind of align all these different avenues to get a project approved. But are you going direct control most or are you trying to stick to standard zones or what are you typically trying to do? Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, it, it's funny. If you take a look on our website, we've got, you know, probably about a third of our projects, uh, of our historic projects up on there right now. And a lot of them are direct controls and it would look like that's uh, that's kind of a favorite thing. But I think that direct controls, I mean, the city for a long time has operated in, in let's, let's pick multifamily, for example. You know, it was the go-to use for anything, any multifamily because, well, maybe if, if it's from a supply and demand or developers and what the market wants is is outside of what the realms of you know the standard zones were, especially RA nine, for example. You know there there was a, a demand for that, but at the same time, you know it the city said, well, if everything is moving in this direction, maybe <laughs> maybe there's shortcomings and maybe things need to be adjusted, right? The good thing about direct controls, though, is they're able to site specific direct controls. They're able to respond to the unique nature that certain sites bring. So. Let's talk about the one in Highlands. We're talking a historic commercial building built mid-block in the middle of RF1 zoned homes. Zero side yard setback, zero front yard setback. Um, totally doesn't look like anything else. And goes to council as a standard zone. And lots of issues there. Land use setbacks, lots of different things. So the only path forward with that was showing, okay, here's what it is. Let's strip out some of the uses that could be objectionable. Let's talk about how this site could redevelop over time if this were completely demolished, which isn't, wasn't the intent of the client. And uh, then it would redevelop into something more in a built form that, that fit the area. And otherwise, here's language that says, here's how we're going to preserve this and, and upgrade it otherwise. And here's what the site plan is going to look like. So it, it provided assurances in 
what it would redevelop. It provided assurances of how it would transform if it were to be torn down and uh, provided assurances on some of those uses that were of concern. So only in a direct control can you do that. And that's not to say all zones are like that. You know, there is a lot of zones that are looking for small tweaks that they go in for direct control um, that, you know, maybe don't need to be that. And, you know, the city and councils kind of push back on that and say, look, we've got a zone that fits this, that's 90% of the way there. Maybe you need to move in that direction. And that's absolutely fair. But so that that's one example of why I think direct controls are valuable. To revisit kind of that kind of market demand thing that we saw, especially in the early 2000s for, you know, multifamily, you know, there were, there were some issues with that. But if, the market is continually asking for something else. Built form, uses, whatever else doesn't fit within a standard zone, then there needs to be a hard look at what are they asking for and how can that be provided? Not everything should be a direct control zone, but if the market demand is somewhere outside of the standard zone, then how can you make that work? And that's, is that form-based code? Is that a much more open land use bylaw with uses? Like, we're in this process right now of rebuilding the land use bylaw, but how much of that is taken into consideration? And, you know, it the neck is cast wide and then it's narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And, you know, I, I believe there's going to continue to be a role for it and especially a role in addressing both the unique sites and where the market is for commercial, multi, things like that. But it's a bit of a balancing act and uh, finding that stasis is, is uh, going to be important going forward. Yeah, for sure. Uh, DC2s come with some financial implications as well. I mean, I, I understand the need for them in, in some unique circumstances. And that one in the Highlands, like I said, my friend lives about a block away and he's excited to see it redevelop. And you guys did a great job of getting, um, shout out to Roddy and Hollow Block, getting some good <laughs> architectural renderings done for that. It was fantastic. But DC2s come with some financial implications. Do you have any thoughts on that? Now, do you mean in terms of community amenity contributions or? Oh, I'm leading you. I'm leading you everywhere. Yeah, I'm leading you everywhere. <laughs> it, it, in my opinion, they start right from the application costs. You have to do uh, more engagement. There's the pre-notification period as well. And of course, um, the architectural stuff that has to be done at the, at the time that you make the application in a lot of times, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a cost that, you know, when we go to our clients sometimes and they want to build something, we say, here are your options. And some will say, hey, we want to do a direct control. We want to build this, this, and this. And, you know, for one, I say, look, do you intend to build this site? Or are you just trying to rezone? Do you ever think you might sell? Don't do a direct control. You want to sell the property. You're going to tie it to something very specific that you're designing that doesn't work for 99 out of 100 people. So stick with the standard zone. But if you do want to build this and you feel that you have a product that uh, you want to build something that you can't build under a traditional zone for whatever reason, and it makes sense on your pro forma uh, that, you know, these additional costs, time, community amenity contributions, uh, risk are all things that weigh against whatever that benefit could be for you. Maybe it's increased FAR. Uh, maybe it's additional commercial uses in your mixed use building that, you know, you weren't getting under RA7 or RA8, whatever it is. Maybe it's something creative in terms of your design that you couldn't do because you had other terms of limitations from heights and everything else. And if that makes sense, then let's pursue that. 
and let's have that conversation with the city. Let's have that conversation with the community too. The other thing too is I think it's valuable in that it provides assurances for the community, especially if your client is setting out intending to construct that. You go with the standard zone, you say, hey, here's a nice big massing. Here's a block of what it could look like. No assurances in terms of design, no assurances of anything else. So costs, absolutely. Assurances for the community, assurances for the, you know, the applicant, for the client in terms of what they can build. You know, it, so it can be a win-win. It is also a cost in terms of city staffing requirements to be able to manage it. And it's a cost on consultants to be able to do that and everything else. So is it ideal? No. Does it lead to projects that work and that are more beneficial for stakeholders, for uh, developers, for the city? I think so in a lot of cases. Um, Some cases, perhaps not, as we've seen historical examples of, but that doesn't mean that you need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think DC2s can be great. You know, the city's use over them to address some of these concerns that we've talked about over the past, you know, couple decades has been good. There's a lot of municipalities, even surrounding Edmonton, that it's like pulling teeth to try to do direct controls. You try to solve a unique problem and they say, no, 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 we don't, we don't do them. You know, they're very rare. And that's fair. That's the direction they've chosen. But as a result, it limits some of the opportunities. And we've had projects stall out as a result because we can't address it through a tailored uh, land use designation for that site. And it has to fit, you know, you're forcing that uh, square peg through a round hole and it doesn't work. And then, you know, that investment in that municipality and that community is directed somewhere else. Do you find that there's specific types of of development, whether it's residential or industrial or some, or historical, that uh, lend itself really well to DC2s that maybe the standard zones don't? Um, well, sure. Like historical, obviously, you've got DC1s that often talk about historical designation, preservation, all things. Absolutely. You know, typically we've seen uh, DC2s on multifamily and uh, of a variety of size and scale. And that's that's fine. I think those work very well, especially when you're talking about potential uh, community impact and um, trying to do something unique from a developer perspective. Uh, but we just finished one for uh, an industrial project, as I was alluding to here, that had, you know, it was a standard to an IB zone, but there were environmental remediation and cost considerations that we needed to consider, along with the continued operation of the buildings that were on site and trying to couple that with brownfield grants, not sure when they would get it. So we created a custom zone to be able to do that, that allowed that operation, allowed potential subdivision of the site, a whole bunch of different things. At the end of the day, I do I wish we could have done it under a standard zone? Yeah. But the city also had a bunch of, you know, rules in terms of the environmental remediation through their environmental planning, different things that they had to follow. So the solution, you know, a pro-development solution, a pro Edmonton solution was found in doing this direct control zone. They can be applied all over the place. As I had said, you look at some of the projects we have up on our website right now, there's a bunch of DC2s. That's just, again, by nature of the projects that are up there right now. But I, I do think there's a time and a place for them. I, I don't think they should be used anywhere and everywhere flippantly, but believe in, in their applicability. Yeah, I really see them as like, there's, there's things that you have in your wardrobe that need to be tailored. Uh, but if you tailored everything and then uh, a pandemic hits and all of a sudden you're a different uh, version of, of yourself, your whole wardrobe doesn't fit anymore. Uh, so you have to have a mix of 
uh, off the shelf and tailored clothes. <laughs> to play devil's advocate then, you have stagnant sites that are tied to DC2s and that's a problem. And so that's where I, I, like I said, when we advise clients, do you, you know, if your intention is to build this, then this can be a path forward. You know, we saw early 2000s, lots of attempts at rezoning the DC2s and flipping, and then they weren't getting the realized or assumed value. And, you know, they sat and there's a bunch of these sites that for 10, 15 years have sat on the edge of downtown, for example. Yeah, legacy DC2s can be a bit of an issue, but they also can be tweaked over time. Or they, you know, as we've seen with sunset clauses in DCs, which I think are is a great compromise because as those development rights expire and it converts to a form that looks more like a traditional zone, um, then there's opportunity if that development never happens. Yeah, I think the last stat I got from the city was 70% of our current DCs uh, that are sitting vacant, like that are, just aren't being developed. Uh, and so it shows that maybe there was a mismatch in how how in the weeds we got into it with our DCs, creating kind of a, a situation where you've applied for it and by the time you can actually build a project, it no longer meets the needs or uh, they use it as a, a tool to flip the land. So, And that's why I think that how they're structured too is important. So I understand a lot of times, especially as we've seen on mixed use and multifamily projects, where there was very specific language and you know renderings and and uh, perspective drawings that talked about the materials and in everything right all the way down to color a specific color and you know there was an example of a multifamily tower built a couple of years ago and they they put you know whatever the color of the dc was on one part of the building and then later they changed it and i thought oh that doesn't that doesn't comply with the the dc but it shouldn't it shouldn't be that something as small as that. And so when you have DCs with such strict language, um, it limits that opportunity and that pivot. Do do I want it all? Absolutely. I, I think that if you can have DCs that offer that flexibility, that as the market pivots, that as um, opportunities change, that you can build in flexibility, um, you know, that it's great. The West Block... Uh, their DC is written very well. And it, it has some of that language in there. And that was a very unique circumstance with a half-built project and everything else. I, I understand where you're coming from, but but uh, see value in them. Um, can, can they be modified and tweaked how we use them? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we need them. I just, uh, I think we also need better standard zones, which is why I'm very happy we're going to the zoning bylaw renewal right now. Uh, you talked a little bit in the beginning about your love for Edmonton. Ryan and I are also big fans of Edmonton. Uh, and we've been noted recently uh, across Canada as being one of the most affordable cities. How do you think we can keep Edmonton affordable? Or is there things that we need to change? Uh, or are we kind of on the right path? Yeah, I mean, it's so I alluded to this earlier, and it's a it's a drum that I've I've beat for a while, and I'll continue to do so. At the end of the day, if you like where you live, and you know, like I said, I'm a shameless fan of Edmonton. You know, we're a self deprecating bunch that like to compare ourselves to other areas or warmer climates or everything else. But there's a lot of good things here. It's a high quality of life. Um, you know, it is a, a safe. It's a healthy area. It's a great place to build a business, take a risk, raise a family, you know, a lot of different things. If you agree with that or you find value in that, 
you know, part of that is wanting to live here and continue to live here. And as you get older, uh, raise a family and hope that they live here as well. And there's a lot of markets where not just in Canada, like Vancouver, uh, all of Southern Ontario now, um, Montreal, even more so Ottawa, that have pivoted towards, you know, unaffordability, especially over the pandemic, but across uh, developed Western nations. And there's been a huge increase of these unaffordable markets. And so if you aspire to, to stay rooted and to do this, uh, to, to raise your family, to, to see people move here, to keep your friends here, then affordability is a key component of that. There's a lot of tools and things that have been explored in discussions, and especially in some of these other markets, they're like, what can we do to encourage it? You know, off-market housing and all this. At the root of it, it's supply and demand. The fundamental root of economics, and it applies to real estate as well, too. You know, we don't have the geographic constraints that Vancouver does, for example, or a lake like Toronto and a green belt and a couple other things. We can talk about green belts and, and in a second here. But we also have a planning framework that compared to a lot of municipalities is relatively easy to see approvals in a timely manner. It doesn't get bogged down for years and years and years um, that there is uh, an ample supply of developable land, uh, both as infill land and as greenfield land. And there's things we can do to make it better in terms of expediting processes, reducing costs, sharing costs, public funding. But the more constraints that are placed on that, things that would limit supply uh, with an increase in demand, it has a direct correlation on price. You know, we've seen an increased demand over the past number of months. You talk to any realtor and, and it's reflective in price. For some people who are homeowners, they might say, oh, that's great, but it's not realized gains by any means. It's all theoretical. They plan on staying here, but it has implications on people who are not in the housing market, on, you know, others who uh, aspire to be someday like my children. And that long-term affordability, you know, speaks to that long-term viability of, of keeping people rooted in an area. So, I mean, I, I can talk, I could talk all day about, about that affordability and, and uh, why I think it's important. Some of the mechanisms that feed it. But I don't know how much you want to talk about. I'd love to talk about green belts actually. Cause yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There was actually just a, a video posted from uh, a, a YouTube channel that I follow city beautiful that just posted it yesterday, actually about urban growth boundaries and green belts and if they're effective or worthless and keeping cities affordable. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on green belts if they're actually, uh, you know, decreasing supply and creating unaffordable cities. There's, there's implications in that their, their purpose, you know, exists for a variety of factors. And, um, you know, see, see in the GTA preservation of important farmland, aquifers, lots of different things, right? You see green belts like in Portland or growth boundaries that have changed, what, 27 times since they were first implemented in the late 70s. It really means nothing. But I, I think there's value in preserving what we collectively as a society see as worth preserving, you know, tree stands, important areas, aquifers, uh, land of high agricultural production. But as a constraint um, that's supposed to be like a belt on development, if you're not doing anything to allow that supply to flourish elsewhere, um, then it's a supply and demand problem. And it's easy as that. 
Uh, so let's say the GTA, for example, you've got your corridors plan, your avenues plan, you've got your new central TO plan, but at the same time, you've got, what is it? 70, 80%. I can't speak to it. You'll have to fact check this, but areas of the city that are exclusive to, you know, single family housing in the residential area. And so to say, you can't grow here, you want to do a new suburban neighborhood in Richmond, great, buy the land. It's going to be 10 years before you're selling your first lot. You know, you can't build anywhere south of this boundary because you got a lake, uh, you got, you know, all these factors feeding into it, but you haven't responded by opening up the supply elsewhere. Um, the prices run away. And oh, and by the way, we are the number one municipality for immigration in Canada. And it's a diverse, wonderful city with a lot of things going for it. But you come here and hundreds of thousands of people every year but we haven't opened up those channels to provide uh, housing, prices increase. It's simple as much. So to your question about green belts, they're, they're complex. They, they answer some questions and, and it comes down to what we value. But do they do good things for affordability? Not without responding on the opposite end of the equation. Yeah, I think Mariah and I can both agree on that. Uh, increasing, you know, allowable density everywhere is, uh, is is probably a good approach. I like the idea of the green belt, you know, having everybody within a certain distance of a park or, um, you know, a green space. Mariah was just on vacation in a city that had a similar circumstance. So definitely agree there. Um, there is kind of a disconnect between uh, zoning and then buildable square footage on, on an individual site, though. So simply allowing a lot of density on an individual site kind of runs into some issues, too. Do you have any thoughts on that? And so we see that in the quarters right now, uh, the price of some of the land in the quarters and why you haven't seen a lot of that, you know, of the private landowners in terms of the perceived value based on the density that they've been attributed through the quarters plan. Downtown Fort McMurray is a fantastic example of that. They went and they up zoned the heck out of it all. And then they said, oh, we want to buy some of this land to provide for some municipal services and amenities. And now they're all buying it at a ridiculously increased value because of the land use designation, the rights that they gave it. So no, (laughs) you assign something and, and well, it's simple enough if, if, you know, we've got a client that has some RA7 land or R4 and they say, oh, I rezone this to um, RA8. Uh, can I get more value out of it? I'm like, yeah, in theory, you can. Um, finding the buyer and everything, you know, we have to look at the site, but absolutely just by the designation on the site, you know, a blanket rezoning of, you know, everything to 50 stories in the city. Well, then you've got a supply and demand equation there and your supply is plentiful. So therefore your price is going to drop right now. Some of these things like in the quarters or in central Fort McMurray, it's perceived value and there's people, few people willing to pay that price. Right. So the actual demand for it has to balance out with that as well. So. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I think what I was just kind of getting at is that there's really no, approach that works like a singular approach that works here simply up zoning everything to allow for increased density is a fantastic idea it likely results in some land prices being inflated having green belts or uh, we have the the agricultural master plan that's uh, waiting for minister approval right now that's going to put the clamps on urban development outside of edmonton to preserve the agricultural land we'll see what that ends up resulting for uh for affordability as well for for land prices so that's just really what i was getting at there is that there's not a singular solution someone should definitely do a thesis on this 
I mean, at, at the end of the day, whatever those mechanisms are, I think that it is something that, you know, our planners that are uh, movers and shakers in the development industry, our politicians especially, need to keep front and center. And we're seeing the implications of that with, you know, interprovincial movement coming to Edmonton. Uh, even over the past couple of months, people who are priced out of markets looking at opportunity, good for Edmonton, but it speaks to what unaffordability does. You know, I told Mariah a story of a family friend that we know um, that has a cabin nearby, uh, my parents' cabin, and uh, they live in the lower mainland. And he was so happy that they were able to help their daughter out, you know, put a uh, deposit to on a $800,000 townhouse on the edge of Surrey four or five years ago, or whatever it was, right? Uh, that they could finally enter the housing market and it took their help to do so. It was crazy to me. Like, this is what it takes in it, but it's just the, you know, you get wrapped up in whatever that context is. Meanwhile, two of his daughters have moved out of the lower mainland because they can't afford to live there with the, you know, good incomes that both them and their husbands have. As, as a father myself, that's the last thing I want, you know? Uh, I don't want to be in a place where I've built up equity in a home over years and I've got mine and sure, I'll help my kids out. No one else can because housing prices are four times as expensive. It, it shouldn't be seen as a vehicle for wealth accumulation. It is a slow and steady investment process where you build equity, but but uh, anything rapid you know, drives people out of the market and, and makes people actually leave. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I know we had talked about that previously and since then, one of my best friends who used to live in Vancouver, downtown, um, got to stay at her place once, beautiful views. Uh, her and her partner, they have incredibly well-paying jobs and left uh, and came back to Edmonton. Uh, he's not originally from Edmonton, but she is because they couldn't see a path forward to afford anything. And they lived in a space that was like 700 square feet. Both were, they both worked in tech, working from home, so it wasn't enough space for them. And now they're renovating a spot right on White Ave. And they were like, wow, everything is so affordable here. And they didn't negotiate the same way someone from Edmonton would have negotiated, which then sets a new price for that building. And let's say, you know, 100,000 people leave the Vancouver area and come into some of our smaller municipalities. Our cities aren't built to take in all of that at once. So... I think we need to be very mindful of how we help all levels. Uh, I know the federal government and their budget has a few billion dollars kicking around uh, to help municipalities out. So I'm interested to see where that goes. But recently at City Council, uh, Councillor Stevenson talked about looking at tax subclassing. And I know we have different subclasses for different types of residential. And I'm wondering if you've ever ran into that as an issue or any of your clients have seen that as an issue depending on the industry that you know some of our clients are in they've got strong opinions about taxes uh whether it be in the industrial or commercial sector versus say some of our multifamily clients you know i i can't speak to the uh the city's intent here uh we we represent clients across the board here and i think at the end of the day finding a fair and equitable way for uh homeowners for uh, business owners for industry owners to be contributing and, and seeing you know their tax dollars put to work that benefit them and the municipality at large is important you know it, it's it's valuable to have these conversations uh, but I do think that 
before significant changes are made to, um, you know, mill rates and property tax and stuff. Uh, these conversations need to be had with stakeholders, uh, which include um, the residents with industry, um, so that uh, council has a, you know, a full picture and understanding as to the implications um, that changes could make. Yeah, property taxes, uh, I think, hit home for a lot of people. We've seen quite the spike over the pandemic. Um, and any changes need to have, like, citywide consultation. Uh, an interesting uh, thing that was happening out of Toronto. Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong. Did they make those changes in 2017? Yeah, yeah, in 2017, the city of Toronto. And I'm not sure if it was the province. We'll fact check this. But in Toronto, they expanded the uh, subclasses. So they added, like, a new multi-residential uh, subclass that had the same mill rate as a low-density subclass. So it's trying to incentivize uh, builders of new uh, multifamily units. So that was kind of interesting. Um, you mentioned tax increment financing before, and I think that's that's kind of where I want to go here a little bit. We do we do it a little bit here in Edmonton. Uh, I know one of the neighborhoods that I used to live in. We uh, had the opportunity during neighborhood renewal to uh, change our light poles uh, to something more decorative and more beautiful, and we did. And then our, it was reflected on our taxes. That's kind of a smaller example, but how do you see it playing out for uh, to incentivize development? Yeah, I mean, so. That's a great example. We had the exact same thing in our neighborhood, and that's a funny kind of, uh, you know, a localized neighborhood one for for smaller infrastructure. We've seen it, like I had alluded to, in our control revitalization levies, and they're given as they're instruments of the province. You know, where they exist uh, in great multitude in the U.S. is all the way down to individual sites. And so, you know, it's 20 years of potential tax paid up in front, whatever it is that's recouped through uh, the rising tide of all property values around it, and that's how you know CRL would work here. But it can be very specific and localized to say a couple city blocks. So uh, you know historic preservation and redevelopment of a site or a you know new mixed use building in an area that hadn't seen a lot of investment before. You know I think there's great opportunities for that, but that power needs to be given to the municipalities who better know the area better know the you know, potential benefits from it where they can make that decision right now i mean municipalities are creations of the province you know and this was explored under uh, previous provincial governments but the city would require the powers to be able to do that and unfortunately don't have that right now and the same can be done i, I think i allude to uh public improvement fees so i'd be small and you see this i don't know if you've ever traveled to the states and you go somewhere and you like you pay the you buy your cup of coffee and you look at the tax and it's like 3.21892%. How do they ever get at that? That can be one, two, three public improvement fees based on, you know, you could be standing in some redevelopment project area there and they're like, well, you know, one tenth of a percent, you know, is part of a public improvement fee and they're recouping it over 20 years. And then after 20 years, that is just going to go to city services or whatever it is. But it's everywhere. It exists all over. So I think those are two great creative tools that exist throughout the United States that have incentivized and helped projects get built that, that could be done here. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I think we've had City Plan for about a year and a half now. And it's something that I know I talk about almost every day. And I'm sure you talk about every day with your clients. Uh, have you seen Edmonton stick to City Plan? Like, 
are your clients, do they understand it? Um, do you, does council understand it? Are we kind of all moving in the same direction? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I would say administration understands it and adheres to it very well, um, more so than any other MDP. Uh, and probably because, you know, uh, there's a lack of the, the finer grain plans at this point. Um, it is the go-to. It says how, you know, how does the city plan speak to this site? That being that first criteria that you look through and that the city looks through is great because it can, you know, let you know where things are likely headed and provide justification for it. If you have a site in an area that's got a 40-year-old outline plan governing it, and you're like, does this hold any water? Oh, well, what does the, you know, city plan say? The city plan envisions this, you know, it's on this arterial road, it's part of this corridor. Okay, it provides justification for this, regardless of what this outdated plan in this area says, right? Yeah, we use it daily. And I think it's great. I think council has a pretty good understanding of it. You know, council has learned a lot, you know, the half of council that's new uh, since the fall. And I think, um, you know, it's being followed fairly well. And then our clients, um, you know, half have a good understanding of it. Uh, the other half have no idea. And that's what we're there for. Yeah, it's, um, I think even though it's only, it's a year and a half old, it's still pretty new for uh, these big plans. And we're still working through those underlying plans that will, will come from it. Uh, but what I've seen is council has, has pretty much said if, if you're building in nodes and corridors, uh, there is a clear vision and clear outset. So I'm hoping your clients uh, are seeing some consistency or some clarity around that. Absolutely. We're providing that clarity all day long. It, it's funny. That was the only the first time it came up because it comes up in every meeting constantly. <laughs> uh, you know, with that, though, th some there are and this is where some of those finer grain plans will speak to it, because we often look at some of these blobs areas, like, say, around the university or downtown or whatnot. And we say, well, is it here or not? And, you know, we've made our argument saying that, yeah, it, it should be included in this. And the city said, well, no, it's not based on where it is. And so there is a bit more information that's needed, especially in, in some of these periphery areas to some of these nodes. But there's also, you know, existing plans, whether it be, uh, you know, TOD guidelines, whether it be, you know, some newer uh, neighborhood plans, things like that, that also help provide information. So, yeah. so almost like you need a planner to sift through all that information. <laughs> Almost. I, I wonder where you could find one to help you out with that. Uh, okay. Well, thank you so much. I know we've kept you longer than we said we would. Before we let you go, uh, we'd like to do a call to action with all of our guests because we're all uh, planning and development nerds here that listen to this podcast. If you were to speak to our listeners one-on-one, -on -one, Ryan and I aren't here, what, would you, what do you want to tell them? So I, I like the idea of a call to action. You know, you gave examples of some of the, uh, and as I've heard on some of your previous podcasts, of, I would say give a damn about this city and get involved. And what that means to individuals is different. You know, it might mean picking up the litter on a regular basis as you take your dog through a, you know, a, a walk. It might be getting involved with your local community league to help inspire change in your neighborhood. It might be volunteering for that local charity that is true to your heart because you've got a family member that was impacted by by a disease or something. Or it might be volunteering with, you know, with kids with a local organization or something. Edmonton is great for that, for that volunteerism, for getting involved in things. 
And I think it's important for younger generations to take up that mantle and to care and invest in 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 our city in ways that that fit them. And that can be planning too. That can be advisory boards. That can be anything else. But if you say you care about Edmonton, then get involved and help. I love it. Give a damn. Uh, That is fantastic. The best place to end. Thank you so much for taking your time today, spending the afternoon with us. uh, And we'll see you soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Mariah. It was fun. So... Dave knows a lot about financial things, the financial sides of planning. I'm glad that, uh, you know, we just had Sean Boley on the podcast as well to, I don't even know if he would have prepped us a little bit for this. I feel like they talked about two different things and there's such a wide range of financial topics to cover in planning. It's crazy. Yeah. It's almost like money is a huge part of development and <laughs> we need more people like Sean and Dave around. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to need more uh, episodes on the podcast talking specifically about some of these items. But yeah, there was a bunch of things that Dave talked about that uh, that I want to kind of tug on here. The first um, skyscraper page, I didn't even know that was a thing. I had to look it up and it was a, it's like a forum. It's like an enthusiast website for like databases of buildings, discussion forums, diagrams. It's like the Reddit of skyscrapers. I had no idea it existed. I immediately signed up when I went to the website and I'm going to be one of those dorks on there now talking about skyscrapers. Have you been on it? Yeah. So I get targeted ads on social media from them. And then I think I signed up for the newsletter a long time ago. So anytime uh, any of the big uh, towers downtown gets approved or new renderings come out that gets refeatured and so I'm like oh hey that's exciting hopefully we'll see it move forward <laughs> it's crazy I, I'm glad that these communities exist um, all over the internet that's that's wild I'm definitely interested in that I, I think it needs a better name though skyscraper page I know it that must have been made off like the back of a napkin uh, and then they like kicked it off and now people just know it so they can change it. But yeah, the first time Dave said it, I like wrote it with a question mark. I wasn't even sure if it was a th- if I was hearing him right or whatever skyscraper page. Anyways, yeah, the one thing that Dave and I kind of got into a little bit is um, the city of Edmonton has the Brownfield Redevelopment Grant. So Dave obviously um, knows a lot about Brownfields, Grayfields. He did his thesis on that. But I find the Brownfield Redevelopment Grant program fascinating by the city. Are you familiar with it? No, I didn't even know it existed. What do you know about it? Everything. Well, maybe not everything, but there's, I know a little bit about it. So I've never actually gone through it with any projects, but um, I do touch on it a little bit in the course I teach at the U of A. But basically, it's it's a program that's managed by the city of Edmonton, and it provides funding for cleanup, like environmental cleanup of contaminated sites. So it's a really narrow scope, like it's only for um, gasoline and diesel refueling stations previously. So if a site was a gas station or um, there's one example here in Edmonton, I think the Fox Towers downtown, they were the former Greyhound bus station, but they managed to sneak under the grant because they technically refueled buses at that at that site. So it counts. Um, so it's fairly narrow. It doesn't include things like heavy industrial uh, sites or dry cleaners or any of those other contaminating uh, uses. But regardless, what it does, it provides funding for that cleanup. So it's a very, very interesting program. It needs way more marketing, in my opinion. And it funded a couple of projects here in town, like uh, Raymond Block on White Ave. So geez, is it 106 or 105th? It's the one with the Remedy Cafe in it, 
104th, 105th, whatever it is, the Raymond Block, and then Fox Towers downtown, which was, of course, the former Greyhound bus station. But yeah, I could talk about it for hours. I love the program. It needs way more airtime for sure. Has, uh, has any of your clients ever looked at using it for any of their sites? Or maybe they haven't run into that yet? No, they haven't really run into it. Um, like I said, it's only for former gas station and diesel refueling stations. So uh, the interesting thing, though, is a couple of years ago, uh, I can't remember if it was Esso or Petrocan, they stopped. Um, they started selling their sites like as is rather than you know, before they, they were kind of liable for the cleanup. But now what they've done is they've started selling uh, former gas station sites at a discount as is. So, you know, <laughs> new owners come on to the, like buy these sites at discounted prices and then have to go clean them up. So because one former uh, gas station company is doing it, I'm sure the rest of them are going to follow and we'll see a kind of a need for this grant program a lot more in the future, in my opinion, anyways. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see how much of a discount versus how much the cleanup costs are. That's a good question. But that's an offline conversation. Uh, okay, well, there's tons of opinions on a lot of things. I have a ton of opinions on this affordability conversation we're having around North America. It is a very big and complex problem at all different types of development, uh, whether it's market rate housing or accessible housing or like it all the different levels of affordability uh, is having unbelievable amount of pressure. And I know we talk a lot about it's a supply issue, um, which, yeah, I do think that the supply is part of that problem, but I'm not sure it's completely the whole problem. I, I don't know. Have you thought about this? Oh, it's so complex. I agree with you. You always hear about, you know, we have to keep it in perspective because our affordability issues are not the same as like Toronto's or New York's or whatever. And I have a friend that uh, lives in San Diego who was telling me uh, last week or something that his rent just increased 30% year over year without any reason. He was forced to move and average rent now in San Diego in, in most neighborhoods is like seven or eight times what the wages are. Um, so you have to keep it in perspective. But Regardless, what, what I'm trying to get at is that affordability is a problem in literally every city. You were you were just in New York. Didn't you go to a conference? Yeah. So I went to a conference that all centered around like medium scale development. So we didn't get into like the high rise conversation uh, or any of that. And they talked about uh, affordability being a huge problem and they have a tax break uh, that allows them to finance, like feasibly build those projects. Um, at market rate and it's up for review right now and they're worried that it won't continue to go forward and they said if it doesn't continue to go forward they won't build it anymore and on the panel they had two developers and then they also had someone who was an operator of the space and have seen how important and have seen the performance of those projects and she was saying we desperately need this to go forward because uh, yeah obviously New York is having a huge affordability crisis I am concerned with Edmonton. I think we do get a lot of uh, people looking to come to Edmonton, which is great, but uh, I'm not sure we've seen the same pressures and demand. So I think our affordability problem is about to get a lot worse in the next five years if we don't make some big shifts in the way that we the way that we tax different types of developments, the way that we uh, that people can access funding the way that people are paid versus the cost of their living, uh, and then supply too. And so it's not just about what can developers get to market, but it's also how do you how do you pay for it <laughs> as the end user? 
Yeah, for sure. There, it seems like there's so many hurdles to affordability. And I, I mean, I don't want to compare New York and San Diego to Edmonton because they're not the same, but like we still have affordability issues here and a tailored solution is kind of what we need. And it doesn't seem like anyone's really solved it. I think the average uh, home price in Edmonton right now is high 400s. And I'm not sure that is what people are getting paid. That's not, not the average household income. So what we really need is someone to come on this, on this podcast and tell us more about it. Yeah, we need an expert. Solve our problems. Come on this podcast and help solve those problems. <laughs> so if you're interested in that and have, have some lived experiences or maybe studied in that, please uh, shoot me an email. And let's talk about it. And then I know we talked a bit about DC2s. We've talked about them in past episodes too, but they're a great tool. I just don't want them to be the favorite tool in the toolbox because they are really expensive. Uh, And it goes back to that affordability. Like if everything is a DC2, then timelines are longer and costs are more expensive and not everything gets built out when they're DC2. So it just, it makes me a little cautious. Definitely don't think we need to get rid of them. Oh, no, I I 100% agree. Dave said a couple interesting things about DC2s in the episode one, basically that DC2s are not for those that want to sell. So nobody's rezoning to DC2 and then going to sell the project or sell the parcel because you're essentially selling that exact project. You have very little flexibility. Dave was talking about, you know, going back and having to redo the DC2 because of the color palettes that were being uh, decided on a construction time so it if you're if you know what you're going to build um and it's unique and creative and that kind of thing i think it's a great tool we've also had a couple of dc2s um get rezoned to standard sites recently which i find hilarious you know there's some dc2s that have parking minimums and parking requirements and that kind of thing that are written in them and then they you know don't build and get sold and then here they are with the new owner wondering why he has to include parking when he wouldn't have to if it was a standard zone so yeah it's it is what it is. And just if I can tangent one more time, yeah, the city, the city is getting better with this. Dave mentioned, you know, that example about the color palette, but um, the city's getting way better, uh, adding more flexibilities to DC2s. In some circumstances, they're not restricting um, a specific build type or a specific like build look or that kind of thing. And there's a, there's a lot more flexibility that's going around. So I do want to shout out the city for, um, for building some flexibility into these because, I think they see that they're not perfect. They're not perfect zoning tools. Hats off to Edmonton. We are a place to be. And I have to go and you have to go because you have a community to go consult with. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for hanging out with me and we'll catch you next time.